0: Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Mother Daughter Team, Dr. Gloria, and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation, with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest today is Allison Smith, and our topic is My Brother, My Best Friend. In 1984, when Allison Smith was only 15 years old, her adored older brother, Roy, died in a car accident. The two were so close that they shared the name Alroy. Allison went on to write the memoir, Name All the Animals, which was a New York Times notable book and was named one of the top ten books of 2004 by People magazine. Other awards include the Barnes & Noble Discover Award, the Judy Graham Prize, the Fountain Award for Speculative Fiction, a Lambda, and the William Sloan Fellowship. Allison's writing has appeared in Granta, McSweeney's, The London Telegraph, The New York Times, The Believer, and other publications. Allison lives in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome to the show, Allison.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me today. It's good to be here.
2: Yeah, it's great to have you on the show, Allison, and what a wonderful, strong book you wrote about your brother. I felt like not only did I... um, enjoy the writing and hearing about your uh, adolescence, but also knowing Roy.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I did. I definitely wrote the book um, sort of because I, when I left Rochester, you, my parents stayed there, and they stayed in a community where everyone knew Roy, and I went out into the world, and I realized no one would ever meet my big brother. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I wrote the book was sort of to bring him back into the world, to sort of show him my friends.
2: And it was quite an effort. So you, six years, wasn't it?
1: Oh, my God. I was so naive when I started the book. <laughs> but that comes in handy sometimes. I I, I said, I'm going to write a memoir and I had no idea what I was getting into. I had no idea how hard it was. I, I didn't realize that there were so many things that I had not looked at because I was afraid to look at them. And in order to bring the reader through the story, I, I had to spend a lot of time in some very sad moments. It wasn't just a celebration of my brother's life. It was a, um, memorializing and grieving his, his loss. He died so young.
2: And you put have to put yourself right back in those events when you write. I know. You have to put yourself back in the fort. You want to tell our audience, well, tell us a little bit about um, Roy and how he died, and then tell us about the fort.
1: Okay. Uh, well, I grew up in Rochester, as we... Discussed. Rochester,
2: New York, by the way, for you Minnesotans. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Um, where Heidi grew up, too. Yeah. And uh, my we, I was in a Catholic family, and my brother Roy and I were the only kids, and we grew up in this little white two-story colonial. And he was two and a half years older than me, and he was just a great guy. I realize I'm biased, but... So you were had...
2: 15, and he was <laughs> 17 and a half, 18?
1: Yes, exactly. Okay. And um, he had a lot of fine qualities, but um, I I think I was extremely lucky, and I thought his finest quality was that he was very fond of me. For Mm -hmm. a big brother, he spent a lot of time with me, and um, he was in some ways the, the person I was closest to in the family. And as we said before, we spent so much time together and were so inseparable that my mother shortened our names into a single shorthand and called us both Alroy, and, and Roy loved math and science. He was going to go to uh, Purdue University on a scholarship and study to be a civil engineer. And he was
2: actually accepted there and ready to go, right? Oh,
1: yeah. Good yeah. for he had him. Graduated That's graduated from wow. um, a boy's uh, Catholic Jesuit high school in Rochester. Mm-hmm. And in the summer of 1984, when I was 15, and I was working my first job at the convent attached to my high school that summer, and my brother was working two jobs. The first job, he, he worked at a grocery store called Tops Friendly Market as the cashier, and he, he really didn't like that job. But he had a second job he loved. He worked at a golf course, and um, he basically got to dig ditches all day and he came home covered in mud. He drove my mother crazy. I think he would roll in the mud before he came home just to make his point. <laughs> and um, we were really happy for him that summer. It was going to be the beginning of... Sort of an extraordinary career. I knew he would be a brilliant civil engineer, but then one rainy morning on July twenty seventh, nineteen eighty four, Roy drove off to work in the family camper van, and he never came home. He died in a car accident that morning, a half mile from the house.
0: Mm. Mm. Awful. Awesome. Yeah. And your, your and your life is suddenly turned upside down, basically.
1: Well, I think as so many of the listeners listeners know, when this happens your life is split in two. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: there are only two things. Mm -hmm. For me, there was before Roy died and after Roy died, and that was the defining moment for for every event.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you talked a bit about the before and after people, too. I thought that was interesting in the book.
1: Yes. I mean, I was 15, and and I think this challenging thing about being a young sibling is that you have so little life experience and you really don't understand so many of your emotions. and, And then you're asked to, to process something, the most, I think the most challenging thing we have to process in this world, which is grief, which is the fact that sometimes we are powerless to save the people we love.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and so I had a lot of <clears throat> some unhealthy and some sort of amusing and healthy ways of dealing with uh, the grief while I wasn't getting a lot of uh, help from adults. And one of the things I came up with was this idea of before people like everybody in the town knew that Roy died. It, it was a small town, and it was a big tragedy. Mm-hmm. And um, But every once in a while, I would meet someone who didn't know he was dead, and they would ask about Roy. And even though this was very painful, it was also very exciting, because I just thought, he's still alive inside that person's head.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I would draw it out as long as I could before they would find out that Roy was dead.
0: And And did you ever think... <clears throat> that maybe he was alive. I know that sounds really strange, but I've got to tell you, Allison, when my brother died, I had this belief that 17-year-olds do not die in car accidents suddenly. Healthy boys don't die. And I kept thinking maybe it was a mistake. Maybe someone kidnapped him and put another boy in that car.
1: Absolutely. I had the exact, exact same feeling. My my scenario was that he actually ran out of the car and ran into the woods mm-hmm. where he was on the cross-country team and he was a big runner. And I just imagined him Just in a sort of verdant green valley, running and running, and that he was going to run home to me. Mm -hmm. And I, um, Roy, and I had a fort in the backyard, and he was sort of the mastermind behind this fort. Um, We built so many different forts because all he wanted to do was build them. He, you know, wanting to be a builder and a civil engineer. The last fort was pretty extraordinary. It had windows and a real roof and um,
2: two stories.
1: Two stories that was a little rickety but it was there and um after he died i spent a lot of time in that fort which was our secret spot it was sort of the one place for the kids where our, our parents were, didn't rule and um i i started this thinking that roy would come back to me in this fort and i started saving food for him
2: did you do the yearning and searching where you looked for him
1: I did, you know, but looking is so interesting when someone when someone dies right a half a mile from your house,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and, you know, the, the world changes within the course of a few minutes, and so my looking, you know, I did look in his room every morning, of course, to see mm-hmm. maybe if he showed up at night, and I, I certainly wandered further and further into the woods um, in the gullies and the gorges around uh, the home where we grew up in the suburbs outside Rochester, because he died on a hill that was, you know, surrounded by these beautiful woods. So I searched the woods, and I also, I thought he would come back to me, and so as I was saying before the break, I started saving my food for him. I I I cut everything in half and would only eat half of it, and the other half was put out in the fort, this uh, little hideout we'd made behind the garage, and, and left for him every night, and I was aided in my magical thinking, I I imagine, by a stray dog because the food was eaten every night.
2: You know, all I could think of when I read that was Santa Claus, you know, how we lose (laughs) things. And the next day they're gone, right? Right, the
1: cookies are... (laughs) And he's been there
2: and and gone.
1: Um, So, and I had that experience with Santa Claus. I'm, I'm sure because I was 15, I was drawing on all these childlike and childhood experiences to try to make this story work and the Mm -hmm. only way the story could work for me is if my brother came back to me. My brother could not leave and I think you know for siblings especially younger siblings it is a physical impossibility to imagine that you can exist without this other person in the world. I I didn't understand on any level on a cellular level even that my brother could die and that I could live. And I, I think everything in me revolted against that and the the sad thing about my magical thinking is it led to an eating disorder because the saving of the food, I, I, I became more and more desperate and I ate less and less and I saved more and more for him.
2: Now can you tell people how you did it at the table and you know how did you do this?
1: Um, I, I was aided by two parents who were very grief-stricken and self-absorbed so they didn't notice mm-hmm. that I... Um, I slid the food, a lot of food, off my plate and into a, a paper bag I kept on my lap. Um, and did
0: and, you have, you know, you were talking about you couldn't imagine how you could have lived and your brother had died. Did, was there any survivor, guilt about why had it been him and not you, Al? Oh, my God, yes. Because I had that tremendously. And, um,
1: oh, I think that I will um, struggle with a version of that for the rest of my life. You know, I, you, I, as a friend of mine once said, she's she said, um, do you understand how precariously positioned I feel in this world that my permit could be revoked at any minute? Mm-hmm. And I think I, I live with that still, this idea that you have to justify your right to live. And it, you know, you
2: talked a little bit about that in your book, and I was uh, asking if you wanted to read it on page 62. I think there's something good about survival guilt there.
1: Yes. Um, it's all. It was. It's about um, survival guilt and also a loss of faith. I grew up in a very religious household, and I
2: very religious. May I say yeah. you had two things that you carried. One was the prayer card with your brother's picture. Yes. Yeah. And the other was your bag for your food or something.
1: Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And um, it was a religious, a Catholic religious prayer card, and and I had been, you know, very close to Jesus when I was a child, and I. I actually talked to him quite often, and he stopped talking to me the day after Roy died. I I lost my faith that day.
2: And the interesting was your parents
1: found faith. They they or, or they they embraced yeah, their faith. embraced their faith. Yeah. Yes, they became even more religious. Mm-hmm. If possible. <laughs> so this is a little passage, at the end of a chapter. Since I was the only one to lose faith to stop hearing Christ's voice, I thought perhaps. It was my fault that Roy had left us. I thought I was being punished for some unknown sin. I had learned early in my Catholic career that one could sin silently in one's heart. One could even sin without ever discovering what one had done or why it was wrong. What I had what had I done, I asked myself, to make God disappear and take Roy with him? Mm-hmm.
0: That's powerful. And, you know, Allison, I felt like I wanted to come in and protect you, and, and I felt so bad for you when you admitted that you had lost your faith and your belief and your mom ran into the room for three days and wouldn't speak.
1: Yes, yes.
0: I felt like you were so alone at that point. Because uh, you told her you
1: didn't
2: believe in her God, right?
1: Yes. Um, I know my mother was so stoic, but she couldn't take this one piece of information. She mm-hmm. finally broached um, the subject with me uh, because the, the evidence was sort of mounting that I that I was no longer religious, and I had a lot of trouble going to church. I felt like a hypocrite being there since I I didn't believe. And and when I said I, I I'm sorry, I don't believe anymore, she she finally fell into despair for the first time since Roy had died. The first time I had witnessed it. What well, that was
2: about a year and a half later, wasn't it? Was it yeah. that long? Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: She walked out of the room and she went into her bedroom and she stayed there for three days. And, and, you know, my father was in an absolute panic and he he begged me to go tell her that I had lied, that I really believed in God. But I couldn't. I I think that, um, I I think that my, you know, my grasp on reality was so tenuous at that point, I, I couldn't tell a lie.
0: And it was part of what you were going through, I mean, we hear this all the time, and I felt this way, you were so angry, kind of angry at God, and thinking, if there's a God out there, this couldn't have happened. Was that oh, yeah. going on at all? Yeah. or? Yes, I mean,
1: I had this relationship with Jesus when I was a kid that was very sort of imaginary friend relationship. And uh, it was a very childlike, wonderful faith. And I think the first time it was truly tested, it collapsed. I mean, it's, the, the, the great test was, roy's death and I, I think probably my imagination in, i couldn't face my own rage right and so i in my imagination i made jesus walk away from me mm-hmm. when really i i didn't know how to accept um that i was so angry with god
0: and i'm wondering if by saying that out loud it tapped into something that your mother was going through And that she was finally allowed to really grieve the loss of her son, and get in touch with that she had some anger and outrage too that this could have happened. With you know, and I don't know. I felt like maybe she was tapping into something as well.
2: Yeah. Well, I was thinking her feeling of being strong for the family. Like, like after he died, she had to go completely rebuild the camper the way it was. I mean, she was a woman of action.
0: She was amazing. She reminded me actually of the way that men deal with grief. <laughs> yes. As I read her book, the book, I was struck by, like my mom said, she threw herself into full gear and uh, wanted to make things okay in the family again.
1: She, was, she engaged in her own magical thinking. And, but I have to say it was almost extraordinarily glorious, like that the level she went to to recreate the, the car an exact replica of the car my brother died in.
2: Uh, Allison, I wanted to quickly ask you how you got the name for the book.
1: Um,
2: That's such a great name, Name All the Animals.
1: <laughs> Thank you. The name was one of the first things that came to me, and one of the only things that wasn't revised a hundred times. Um, but it, it, it's from the... My father was a very religious, is still a very religious man and as a Catholic, and he came into Roy's room and then my room every morning and blessed us with... Relics. It was a pretty extraordinary gesture Mm -hmm. of of sweetness and oddness, and very old worldliness to to wake up to the laying of a a relic on your skin.
2: What would a relic look like? Um,
1: They're about the size of a half dollar, and these were sort of copper plated and with a little filigree around the edge. And there's a glass plate over the top, so it, the depth is like a half an inch thick, and inside, there's a under the glass plate, there's a little pile of white powder, which is supposedly the a piece of a bone from a saint. Wow. So he had the bones of St. Gerard and the bones of St. John Noonan. Um, he's from another century, I know. And, and it
0: sounds like something that a priest would do, right? I mean, it's just it's yes. amazing. It's a wonderful yes. thing to be blessed every day.
1: Yes, it it was, the the gesture is very loving, but confusing for Mm -hmm. me as a kid. And he would bless us and name the different parts of us, you know, bless her mind and bless her hands and bless her deeds and bless her thoughts. And, um, I went into my brother's room one morning when I was about eight after my dad had gone through the blessing and left for work. And I got, crawled into bed with him and poked him and said, what, what's that about? Why does dad do that? And he said, he's naming us like Adam named all the animals. Mm, uh, keep track of it. Uh, and
2: that's how you got the name of the book. That's oh, no, wonderful. Well, um, I wanted to ask you from the last segment you were talking about how you'd gotten an eating disorder, saving half of your food for Roy and taking it in the fort and mm-hmm. having it gone in the morning. And I wondered, I know we've got parents out there who are concerned because they have children who are losing weight, teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any suggestions for them?
1: Well, I think the first thing to remember about food issues is it's never about the food and, and I think um, kids can sense tension about a hundred miles away and I and especially adolescents they're they're interested sort of in, in defining themselves often in opposition to you so if you start pushing the food on them you it could just set itself in a little more strongly I think so I, I think there's another way to go at it one of the I would suggest the first things to do would be simply sort of saying, hey, do you want to make dinner with me tonight? What do you want to make? Where do you want to, or do you want to go out to eat? And sort of try something a little simpler and a more celebratory around food and the process of making food. If, if this doesn't work, I really think probably the thing to do is just to talk to your kid more about everything else in their life. Because Mm -hmm. there's some, you know, not eating or eating too much is about, I think it's about grief and rage. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: so it's when a teenage girl stops eating, she is basically not able to manage some emotion she's dealing with.
2: And we're particularly talking about grief here. Um, because this may be something some of anorexic patterns are building way early but if it starts as a result of grief and you can kind of uh, nip it on the bud in working with the problem uh, you'll probably have a lot better chance of helping them I know there were a lot of secrets kept in your family did you feel like that was part of what uh, led to your eating problems
1: I I think that Definitely, there were so many secrets and there was an enormous burden on me to uh, keep a lot of secrets and also a burden on me to uh, keep the secret that we were grieving, that that my parents were sort of ashamed of public displays of of grief um, and ashamed of all the attention that was on them suddenly. It it is uh, really overwhelming that you're a public figure in the most horrifying way because you're Your child is dead, and there's newspaper articles about it.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of shame and guilt connected with that. Would you read um, on your... I ask you to do something on um, description of grief, because I think it's so excellent, um, at that page 61.
1: Yes, here we are on 61. There were so many wasted afternoons, so many useless, listless, empty hours of staring and blinking, and then staring some more. I passed entire days tracking the course of a single dust moat across the basement.
2: Mm-hmm. That is such a uh, great example. And the other one I wanted you to read is about the high school. There were these runners that would come to your house and sit with your family, and your mother would give them cookies or something, in the high school oh, the running boy. team. Yeah, I your, loved when the boys would come. But your brother was on. Mm-hmm. And could you read that um, That. Page 74 also, because that also talks about what was going on with the grief in the family.
1: Right. This is right after um, that the boys have left the house. And my parents just come to life whenever the boys come to the house. But my father, you know, sits down in a chair after they leave and says, those boys, they'll live to be 100. They'll live forever. So he's also sort of devastated by their presence. Right. Um. And I wrote after that, We bumped around the house for a good six months, stunned, hungry, longing, waiting for the runners, unable to find the door back into our lives. I returned to school, grew two inches, and lost ten pounds. Mother climbed Mount Marcy twice. The new St. Jude joined us at the kitchen table. But nothing really changed. Mary Elizabeth still mooned over Jimmy, the lead guitar player. I still sneaked out to the back, out the back door every night and visited the fort. My parents said their daily prayers and every Sunday we all dressed up and went to mass. And after a while, even God's long silence did not seem that strange. We remained removed. One foot in this world, one foot in the next. With Roy. I checked his bed every morning, just in case.
2: Oh, thank you, Allison. That's so. uh,
0: That really captures captures what's going on behind closed doors with a brief family. Well,
2: Allison, I wanted to say uh, to everyone, your reading is just so powerful. It's really moving, and uh, I hope that everyone will get your book, Name All the Animals. And as I said, you can go on Amazon, and you can also go to our our blog, thegriefblog.com. Um, Allison, uh, when we went to break, Heidi, you were saying you wanted to ask Allison about something.
0: Um, yes, I wanted to ask Allison. Unfortunately, we found out that Allison's mom, your mom, died of cancer. What, in 2003? Yes, Allison,
1: 2003. And So she and was never
0: able to see the book finish, was she, or to see it no, published? No, she wasn't. Um, and how did how did you did she she knew you were writing it, didn't she? You know, it was it was complicated.
1: My mm-hmm. My mother disowned me when I came out as gay,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I had not been in her life uh, by her choice for from the time I was about 23 until, you know, just before she was diagnosed with cancer. Right. And then she was so ill, and clearly she had been behaving in a selfish way. She really didn't pay attention to what I was doing. Mm-hmm. She She didn't know until the very end that I... Was even working on a book, and by that point she was so ill because the the cancer had metastasized to her brain. She she wasn't able to read.
0: That's that's it's too bad because this is such a beautiful memoir and tribute to your to not only Roy but to your family. Well, I really you. think she would have embraced it. Um, and I have one quick question. Your father says throughout the book, "You're all I have left, baby. You're all I have left." Yes. And now your mother is gone your brother is gone, and your, you are truly all that your father has left. And I was wondering how that is for you as a surviving sibling and child. How is that? It's a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of
1: pressure. And, and the, to be perfectly honest, it's a, it's a great burden in my life. Um, I, I think because of <clears throat> the way he poses the question, it's it's very centered on his need
0: mm-hmm.
1: and how I'm going to meet his needs. Um and so I, one of my projects in life, my lifelong project, is to learn how to love my father and be with my father and set a boundary and understand that he is, is, a, is a well that will never be filled, that there, there will never be, I will never do enough for him.
0: Well, and you can never be Roy and your mom and everybody, you know, you are you
1: yeah I'm at an extreme disadvantage <laughs>
0: we, we can't replace our, our lost our sibling we can't I can't replace Scott even though I've tried to replace as much as I can you can't you can't it's replace not that your person. job it's not right your job. so so your advice to to uh, parents out there that are listening is is with regard to uh the pressure trying not to put that pressure on kids.
1: I think it's really important in our culture to remember that sibling grief is not oh yes. And then there's this other grief. Sibling grief is an equal, and I believe sometimes a greater grief even than parental grief if, if you're looking at an adolescence. If, if you're a parent, I mean, I can only imagine the unbelievable horror of that grief
0: but, but you know, you but
2: you know, Allison, uh, your grief is your grief, and you can only know your own grief. Mm-hmm. So you can intellectually say, "Oh, and well, maybe parents," but you know, the important thing is, what is your grief?
0: Well, and I love that Allison is saying this, Mom, because I cannot tell you the number of shows, Allison, since you're a sibling. Now I can say this in that we have done where people have come on and said a loss of a child is the worst loss you will ever have, and yeah. what it does is it shuts me down because my loss. Yeah. Of Scott is the worst loss I've ever had, and that's what I know. And I know he's not in my life. And like my mom said, we can't. We need to not put which loss is worse. All loss is bad. All loss is horrific. We've lost these people, especially when we're really close to them. It's awful.
2: Well, it's your loss of innocence. It's a loss of so many things.
0: It's a loss of your future. Um, mm-hmm. And also, the responsibility
2: of siblings is coming up for me now when I hear you guys talk about you feel like some kind of responsibility that you should be doing something to make it better.
1: Right. Well, I also think that it's 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 culturally present. I haven't met a sibling who's grieving who hasn't been said, um, it's your job to take care of your parents now. Or how are your
2: parents? Or, yeah. Right. Well, Allison, we've, uh, time to close our show, and I want to say thank you so much for being on, and it's just um, a wonderful thing, and I would recommend people get your book. It's just a... A glorious book. And uh, do you have a comment that you'd like to make, or a piece of advice that you could give our listeners when we, before we close?
1: Um, I, I know this is a small thing to say, but people ask me who are just grieving, and I'm—I've lost Roy about 22 years ago now, and I'm still learning. And I think the thing I say, if you're in the first month, is your only job is to stay alive.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and that's, yep,
1: that's it. So like you said, that's our in this world with us. And yeah. and, and you can be guaranteed that there will be changes. Things will shift.
2: Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Allison, for being on the show.
0: And Thanks, Allison. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.